Dads, happy Father's Day. It's good to be us today. I got up an hour earlier than normal, so my plan for the afternoon is going to bed. So uh, let's all do that together. It's going to be great. Uh, today we're going to talk about something that applies specifically to us. It's a morning for men because this is something that we just don't do as well as women. Okay, what we're talking about today and shaving our legs. We just don't do those things as well as women do. And this type of thing for us as guys, like this is baked into our DNA of who we are and what we're good at or not good at. This is on the not good at side. So if you're a woman, you've got like full car accident authority today, which means you just get to drive by, look at it and say, ooh, that's bad. And then keep going. Okay. Because this is something specific to us. Like we don't do this well. And I'm talking about this thing inside of all of us called autonomy. The idea that I can do this all by myself. It's an achievement when you're two. It's an achievement when you're 92 that we can do life by ourselves. And really, this is baked into the culture of everything that, as guys, we hold value. So the famous guy, John Wayne, with the cowboy, his famous character on the horse, he was the lone ranger. Not the, I always need help. Not the, I've got a team behind me. He had a sidekick, but it was very clear that Tonto was the sidekick because he was the lone ranger. Nobody else. No other rangers. Just one. Lone ranger. We want to be John McClane. We want to be Terminator. We want to be Jason Bourne. We don't want to be the wormy intern who gets choked out in the, st in the stairway like in movie number four of Jason Bourne. We don't want to be those guys. We want to be the one. We want to be James Bond. We don't want to be second chair. We want to be the one. And the thing about that is the longer we stay around where we are the man, where it's just us, the ceiling begins to come off of the damage that that type of lifestyle can have and the way that that can impact us. And for a lot of us, this idea, this goal of autonomy is the type of thing that we are running toward because a lot of our life was not this way. The goal to be able to live on our own, to provide for our family, to need nobody else. This is the American dream. Like This is baked in to what it is to live here, is we're going to have our own place and need nobody to accomplish daily life. We want to be autonomous. We want to need nothing else. And so we, we get consumed with these pictures of the, of the player who can put the team on his back and lead everybody to victory and the corporation who can go from zero to eight figures and all this stuff. And then we are always amazed by the person who has some type of meteoric rise to the top and then absolutely implodes because of decisions that they made as leaders. We're convinced that once we can call all the shots, we are always going to call the right shots. And then we see story after story after story after story of where that absolutely doesn't work out. Where somebody rises to the top by their own skills, their own ability, and then while they're there, it all comes crashing down. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11 today. We're finishing up uh, two different looks at the guy uh, who a lot of the Old Testament is, is about, and he is David. David is a man after God's own heart, and in that way of him going after God's heart, there is a train wreck that follows him in a lot of different ways. 
The good news for us in that is we get to see a picture of God as provider, God as Lord, God as shepherd, who follows, who runs after and draws back to him the train wreck. So if you feel like, man, I am barely good enough to be in church today, or if anybody knew what was going on in my life today, they wouldn't let me in here, we're among friends. Right, David is blue-collar David, like we talked about last week. If you have problems with your kids, David's your guy. If you've got problems in your marriage, David's your guy. If your boss wants to kill you, David's your guy, because that was literally him. And so we're going to look at an area in David's life where this desire, this quest for autonomy, this quest for I need nobody else brought everything down. But the thing is, is it was all brought down in secret. It wasn't a public fall from grace. It was a very, very private, very few people knew about it disaster. And it all started because he could do everything by himself. So 1 Samuel 11, what's going on up to this point is David's about 50 years old. So he's made it. Right? He grew up nothing. He had something turn in his life completely in his favor. He had a massive victory and shot up to prominence right away. And then from there, things started to get dicey. He had tons of money. He had tons of authority. He had tons of respect, tons of resources, tons of women. And that's where it began to fall apart. So it says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, he says, Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got up out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. This probably wasn't the first time he's been on that corner. He knew exactly where to go. He knew exactly what to look for. He knew exactly what time to do that. And so he sent someone to find out who she was. And immediately he was told, she is Bathsheba. She is someone with a name. It's not just a body. There is a somebody behind the body. And she is the daughter of Eliam. That means this isn't just somebody that you can look at. This is a man's daughter. This is somebody who he held when she was tiny and watched her grow up. She's the daughter of Eliam, not just some dude, but of a person with a name, with a story, with a history. And she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Like right away, David sees this, this woman and his heart is drawn to her, his eyes are drawn to her, his sexuality is drawn to her. And right away, there's somebody who comes up, a, young, a little person in his society, a little person in his like, leadership organization who says, no, 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 you can't go there. She's someone's daughter. She's someone's wife. I know you're looking at it, but you need to stop that. You need to go do something else. You need to walk away from this situation because what you're doing right now is sin. This woman is somebody. She's not just the type of thing that you can use for your enjoyment. She is a person. And so David has some decisions to make. Well, that, that second name, she's somebody's daughter, and she's also Uriah's wife. Uriah is a man who's in David's army at this point. He's sleeping out in the dirt defending David's kingdom. So we can all look at this, whether you're a preschooler or an atheist or been in church your whole life or you're just trying to figure this out. At this point, we look at where David is and say, okay, dude, you need to walk away. Regardless of where you are in life, you say you shouldn't continue to look. If you think, well, she shouldn't be bathing there, think about this. David is on top of the tallest building in all of society. She is clear and hidden from almost everybody. She's doing nothing wrong. David's done something wrong. And so the thing is, is does he keep going forward or does he walk away? 
And David had gotten to the point in his life where there was nobody with enough clout, with enough respect, with enough value in David's mind for them to say, walk away, and for him to do it. Because he was autonomous. He was his own man. He was his own boss. And no one could tell him what to do. So at this point, is he going to walk away or is he going to walk into a bad decision? The thing about autonomy is autonomy gives life to bad ideas. And so this bad idea, what started as seeing something, which for us as guys, that is always going to happen. Living in 2021, watching TV, walking around our city, whatever it is, there's going to be things, there's going to be women that catch our eye. Our decision is do we walk toward them or do we walk away from them, especially visually with our mind? To follow Jesus is we walk away. Like we can't control the world that we live in. We can control our eyes and our mind. And instead of walking away, David walks straight at the bad situation. So David makes one decision. He's not going to walk away from it. He's going to walk toward it. He's going to walk toward her. He's going to walk toward a relationship that starts by accident and continues and mutates from there. So David's next move is he powers up. You know, it's that desire for autonomy. It's the desire to do whatever we want. The desire to pay our own bills. The desire to live where we want. That starts out completely innocently. And then it mutates. And then it gets bad. And then it gets ugly. And so verse 4. So David sent messengers to get her. Who's the her? The her is Uriah's wife. The her is going into a situation that nobody should ever go into. That David himself would look at and say, you can't do that. Instead, he's violating his own rules. He's violating his own conscience and walking towards something because he's got nobody in his life to tell him no. David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her because he's the king, and he's convinced he can do whatever he wants. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period, and then she returned, and then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. David powers up in this situation so that he can control the outcome. It's what we want to do in every situation. We want to control the outcome. We don't want to let the outcome control us. All right, I've got a brother-in-law. He is a genius. Like, he is super duper smart. He and I, this is not a slam on me, but just go with me for a second, could not be more different. All right? He is ready, aim, 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 fire. And I'm like, fire, 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 fire. Yeah, we should have aimed a while ago. Like, that's just my personality. I am do, do, do forever, all the time. So years ago, like 15 years ago, Eden had just been born. Uh, we're driving to my parents for Christmas, and that means that you have to drive through snow and stuff like that. Uh, and it was snowing for a while. It was icy. And we've got our two-wheel drive Saturn view that we have to take up a hill to get to my parents' house. And this has been ice for a long time. This is half of four-wheel drive, which means two-wheel drive, which means not effective. Uh, and so I got outside, uh, put the chains on the car and everything. While I was putting those on, my dad drove down in his little sedan, picked up Anna and Eden, drove them up the hill in his little sedan. And I figured, I'm going to make it because I have a pulse. This is what we do. And so my brother-in-law hopped in with me. The aim, aim, precise, brilliant. Everything is always correct with Crazy Ken. Uh, and so we start up the hill, and we hit ice, and so we start spinning, a little, not spinning this way, but like the wheels are spinning and stuff. And my decision is, screw it. I'm a man. Keep pushing down on the gas. Everything's going to be fine. And so I can always see a shaking head in the back. Thanks, Ernie. You spoiled the ending where we were going. 
Somewhere along the way, one of the cables kind of broke uh, inside the fender of the car, and my brother-in-law is like, I think we should stop now. Now, I don't listen to that because I am pedal the metal full speed ahead, and he's still aiming back at the, back at the base of the hill. He's like, everything's going to be fine. I'm like, let's do this. If we can only make it up this hill, everything's going to be fine. And then we started to hear another sound. And he said one of those sentences that you should never hear, but when he says it, it's always stuck in your mind, right? Like those few sentences in your life that you'll never forget where you were when they were said. He's looking out the side of the car, and he says, I think those are pieces of your car. Because what had happened was the cable had come undone, and so instead of sticking to the wheel as it was all spinning around, it was sticking to the fender and then destroying the fender as it went around as my car did not make it up the side of the hill that night. We parked it in a bush and then drove it up the next day. And when we got to the house, I parked it so that Anna couldn't see that side because I'm smart. That's how we do life. David had a moment to say, you know what, I'm going to stop. I'm going to listen to wise advice. Wise advice. I'm not going to do it. But there was no one who he would listen to and actually allow to speak truth into his life because he wants to control the outcome. So David, getting an idea, he's going to control the outcome. He can solve this. He is the Lone Ranger. He's got this. Sends a message to Uriah to bring him back to town. He wants to hear an update from Uriah. He wants to know how the fighting is going, how the war is going. And his plan is, is that when Uriah is here in the city, he's going to go home to his wife. They're a married couple. They're going to have sex, and everything is going to be fine. He can control the outcome. Verse 9, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Probably the same question his wife asked. Next point. Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of, the, of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How can I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you can return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then David invited him to dinner, and he got him drunk. And even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, Uriah slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Man, that's, that's a man for us to follow. As we look at our kids, we look at our sons, that's the type of person that we want to rise up. The type of person who understands sacrifice, the type of person who understands loyalty, the type of person who does the character decision, even when it's the harder move. That's the type of person that we want to look at and say, I'm going to base my life on. The person who works hard when nobody's looking, the person who works hard even when they have an opportunity not to. He had, the, uh, he had autonomy, you know, like David, he had autonomy to do anything he wanted in that situation, and he still took the hard road. He still did the honorable thing. Because authority, accountability, and community create legacy. Like, that's what we want. For us as guys, for us as a church, we want the things that are set about us after we are dead and in the ground to be things that don't need a, yeah, well, you didn't know about this. But for our lives to have integrity to it, and that's what Uriah had. We create our own legacy decision by decision, and good decisions don't happen in a vacuum. Bad decisions don't happen in a vacuum. God's plan, God's will 
for us is to live a life where people have the opportunity to speak into us, to give direction to our life, to, to give support, to give encouragement in our life, to give correction in our life when we need it. David had none of those. And Uriah didn't make these decisions in a vacuum. Uriah made these decisions probably because of years and years and years of deciding, even in the little things, I'm gonna do what's right, I'm gonna do what's honorable beyond anything else. And so for Uriah, for David, our community determines the direction and the quality of our life. And so Uriah had just spent months at war surrounded by his band of brothers. And so he has an opportunity to go and do something unlike them. And he says, no, I'm going to stick with the community that I have, even though he's not close to them or physically. He's going to continue to live that life. David, on the other hand, abandoned his community with his decisions. And so Uriah stays at the palace. And at this point, David is completely outmaneuvered. He made a bad decision and then he made a plan which led to another bad outcome. And so he made another plan. This, plan his t- this time, his plan was to write a letter to Joab, to David's, one of the close guys in David's life who could actually speak direction into him. And he said, I want you to station Uriah at the front of the battle. Put him where the fighting is the worst. And when it gets really bad, I want you to pull everybody else back so that Uriah dies. That's the letter. And he wraps it up and he seals it so that nobody can open it. And he sends Uriah back in to fight, back in to do the honorable thing with his own death warrant. And so it says, in verse 26, it says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives. And then she gave birth to a son. You know, at this point, David thinks everything is good. Like nobody knows. The whole story died with Uriah. I'll make sure that Bathsheba keeps her mouth shut because she's a woman in this society. She has no rights, no voice. David is the king. He can silence everything. In his mind, this is done. And the next phrase says, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Someone saw. Someone knows. A lifetime of cover-up. What went into this is totally out in the open now because God knows. And if you think that's, that's mean, why would God be displeased with David? Isn't God a God of love? This situation gives us a crystal clear understanding of why God can be displeased with things. Because if you were Uriah, would you want God to be okay with all this? Would you want God to be a God of justice to work things out so that your death is vindicated? Yeah, you would. The idea that God is soft and doesn't have a heart of justice is something that we think of in the softest moments of our lives. But the idea that God actually fights for and identifies and sees and has value for the oppressed in our world, that's the type of thing that's born out of God's action in moments like this. Because what was supposed to stay a secret didn't stay a secret, even for the king. With one decision, David completely underwrites an entire lifetime of greatness. And instead of losing his crown, instead of losing his kingdom, what David lost after this was credibility with his kids. What David lost after this was credibility with his kids. 
Because right after this, two chapters later, things start to unfold. And it's not because there's an army that comes in from the north, the south, the east, or the west, or some other occupying force. It's because David's sons begin to rebel. And David's sons begin to take a sword to go after each other and then after David. David compromised. David paid for it in the one place that none of us want to pay for it dearly. And that's at home. That's with our family. And so where do we step into this? As men, as the people who have a desire for autonomy, right? Like we want to write the own, we want to write our own destiny. We want to be the ones that God leads forward to save the day for our wives, for our kids, for our family. Like this is us, except we don't want that part. We don't want David's part. We're convinced that if we're in charge, we're going to call all the shots the right way. So how do we actually cut off autonomy and live into this without sacrificing our God-given desire to lead and to create and to make something of ourselves and of our lives? The first thing is to realize that we're not created for autonomy. We are created for community. We're not created for autonomy. You and I are actually created for community. We were talking about it this morning in Sunday morning prayer, which meets at nine in that portable right over there. If you want a group of people that pray together, and it's a great place for you how to, to learn how to pray for yourself and for the church, join us at nine. But one of the things that we talked about was that us as a church, we're similar to how a body functions, that we all look and do things completely different, but God put each and every one of us here on purpose to accomplish the same thing. Our hands and our feet, they look similar, but they do two totally different things. And when you get really close to it, they are fully different. And God put each of them exactly where they are to do the things that God has for them to do. And it's the same with us. We're not created for autonomy. We are created for community. The the backstage pass to how this whole story goes sour is in the uh, very first verse of the chapter. It says this, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army away to fight the Ammonites. And David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Like that's one of those lines that you read that in light of everything to come. And you're like, that's where you went wrong. That's where it all fell apart. It didn't fall apart the moment that you were up there and you decided I'm going to send for the woman that I see that doesn't belong to me. That is somebody else's wife. That is somebody else's loved one. I'm going to make her my treasure and my trophy. It's the moment that he kicked out everybody from his life who had the opportunity to speak into his life. And so the personal cost of that wasn't paid by David as the king. It was paid by David, the dad. Like, this is one of the only stories that gets remembered about King David. If you're like, well, no, 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 he killed Goliath and he did all that stuff. No, that's servant boy David. There are no other memorable stories about King David except for this one. This is his moment. And it all fell apart. I think the good news in this, the hope of the gospel in this is twofold. The first one of those is that you and I, regardless of your man or woman, we all sit in the spot of David every day in every area of our lives. We are that person around our finances, around the way we talk to people, and around the way that we work, around the way that that we, everything. 
We are that person. What's so good is that for all of us, regardless of our sin struggle, regardless of what identifies us as David in this story, in our lives, is that God loves every single one of us. We think, how could this story be in the Bible? If David is supposed to be the hero, we would have cut this out forever ago. But the thing is, is God uses stories like this to give us a picture of his heart for redemption, of his heart to take what is broken and corrupt and lead it to fullness, lead it to restoration, lead David, lead you, lead me to right standing with God. That happens because Jesus came into the world. Jesus didn't come into the world for where you are right now because you go to church and stuff like that. Jesus came into the world because all of us are just as broken, just as dark, just as sinful as David is. And Jesus came into the world to forgive us of our sin and to bring us in relationship with God. Even the stuff that we're convinced nobody else knows about. That this story gives us a picture of how encompassing and how massive and how flooding into the worst decisions of our lives God's love and God's forgiveness and God's new life are. The second issue of hope is, is that the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is, makes us family. Sitting here in this place as someone who says, if this is you, that you believe that Jesus died for your sins, you have more in common with a Christian in Iraq than you do with somebody who hates who Jesus is and might live across the street from you. This makes us family because we have a common destination. We have a common enemy. We have the type of thing experienced through forgiveness that can make two people who have nothing in common have something in common because Jesus died for our sins. That he ran after you and me when we were lost, when we were broken. And so the good news of Jesus makes us family. We're not created for autonomy. We're created for community, which means that we need to give access to people who need nothing from us and get nothing from us. This moment in David's life, he was only surrounded by people who he could fire, who he could dispose of, who he could have murdered. He was only surrounded by those people. He had nobody who could look at him in the eye and tell him the last 5% that everybody else was too scared of, rightly so, to tell him. He needed one more person in his face to tell him the last 5%. And if you read the next story, that's the hero of the story. You read the next chapter, that's the hero of the story. It's a guy named Nathan who says, this is exactly what you did. Stands face to face, toe to toe with David. Everybody else is powered down at this point. Nathan powers up and he says, you are the problem in this situation. And he doesn't do it to crush him. He doesn't do it to kill him. And that's the same way with Jesus is he doesn't expose sin in our lives to make us feel bad. He exposes it in our lives so that he can go in and that he can make the work, he can do the work to make us more like him. That's the hope for us. And that's what's lived out for us. For us as guys, I think one of the most dangerous things in our lives is the idea that we come to church and what everybody sees around you here is where everything else is in life, that everything is that good. So there's not a million things I want to leave you here feeling bad about. I want to give you two options about how to fix this. We talk all the time about shape groups. Why do we talk about shape groups? Because us as guys, we need an opportunity to be able to say, this is what is going on, and have people who can read through our BS and see what's going on in our soul. So if you're like me and you like early mornings, Thursday morning, 6 a.m., uh, it's going to be on the screen. We meet right over in the cafe, and it's done by 6.45 because a lot of us have to get to work at 7. If you don't like mornings, 
4 p.m. at the main campus. It's a little bit warmer, but it's not in the morning, uh, and you can go there. We're going to read a little bit of the Bible. We're going to talk about how it hits us that day. We're going to pray for each other, and then we're going to go to work. Why? Because every single one of us, we're wired for community. We're not wired to be the Lone Ranger. We're not wired to be the single op who goes in and handles everything individually. We're men and women within the family of God that God knits together to make us more like him. To take out the, area, the areas of our life where we say, I got this. And actually to lead us into the type of person who changes our family, who changes our situations, who changes the areas around our lives where God wants to work through us to bring restoration, to bring hope to people who have none. So men, that's what we do. That's what it is for us to celebrate today on Father's Day, that we have a heavenly Father who came into our world to meet us in our weakness, to understand our weakness, to not shame us in that weakness, but instead to restore us and to send us out to help others. Let's stand and pray.